This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, we discuss elements entering estimates of climate damage and what they mean for policy. Don't forget to listen to the summary of the main points at the end of the podcast. A quarter of the world's population is already under high water stress, and this situation is only expected to get worse with a heating planet. Water levels are rising, and this will affect how people in densely populated areas in Asia, as well as other parts of the world, live. In parts of Europe and elsewhere, the tourism industry will be affected, and agricultural production is expected to fall in diverse continents such as Africa and Australia while they rise elsewhere. Tropical forests in eastern Amazonia and Latin America may be replaced by savanna, and of course, migration patterns would be affected by all this. Over the years, civilizations have used their ingenuity to adapt to a changing climate. And now, we must use our ingenuity to also mitigate our impact on the planet. This is a complicated endeavor. Let's find out how to approach it. Good morning and welcome. I am Rumin Islam, host of Tell Me How. And today's guest is Professor Charles Kohlstadt from Stanford University, who's been a coordinating lead author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a co-recipient of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, He's also a founding co-editor of the journal, The Review of Environmental Economics and Policy. He's also served as an advisor to the state of California on their greenhouse gas cap and trade program. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you here. So, Charlie, this is our second podcast dealing with climate policy, a very complex topic, and we look forward to learning from you. And my first question to you regards the different facets of science and economics that need to be tied together to understand, to get some idea of the potential damages to human well-being as a result of higher greenhouse gas emissions. So what are the different aspects one needs to address? That's a good good question. Natural science is uh, obviously fundamental to making decisions about climate change, no question. We need to understand how the physical world changes as greenhouse gas levels rise. And the consensus is that we understand that pretty well, although uncertainties remain. Uh, How a biologic system responds to a changed climate is important to people and probably less well understood, an area ripe for further research. But the, the big question marks are how will people be affected? positively or negatively. It's not always negative. Uh, How will they respond and adapt to a changed climate? And how difficult it will be for people to reduce emissions of greenhouse gases, economic and social issues? Furthermore, how will these questions be answered by different peoples of the world, ranging from the poorest to the richest and everyone in between? Yes. You know, This is a very critical point, that it's always very difficult to predict people's responses to any change, even to much less complex phenomena. So I I thought it'd be important and interesting to talk a bit about the kinds of models used to estimate the economic damages resulting from climate change. 
and uh, the models that we use to look at the impact of alternative climate policies. And of course, I, I don't mean we we're going to go into the nuts and bolts of it, but just to understand the main characteristics. I understand that these models are generally referred to as integrated assessment models, a big name. So could you just explain this to us? Sure. And of course, there are, there are models that look at little pieces of a system, but the integrated assessment model, you can tell by its name, is intended to integrate mostly the physical and natural sciences with the economics and social issues. So, and they're typically used, IAMs, integrated assessment models, typically used to evaluate climate change, uh, particularly climate change policy. And uh, the, the word, as I was mentioning, uh, refers to the fact that these models have a natural science component and an economic component. That's the integrated part of it. And it reflects the fact that uh, understanding about climate change is, is multidisciplinary. Some of these models are relatively simple, and some are very detailed. The simple models, such as the DICE model of Professor Nordhaus, have the advantage of being broadly understandable. A disadvantage is the lack of precision. That's the, where the trade-off is. More detailed models try to delve more deeply into both atmospheric processes and sectors of the economy. Uh, energy sector being an important one. Some also have a great deal of geographic detail. However, these are uh, often very complex models that are difficult for people other than the modelers themselves to understand everything that's going on. And to top it all off, the verdict is still out on whether the more detailed models are any more accurate than the simpler models. In most models, key assumptions such as population growth and the progress of carbon-reducing innovation are exogenous outside the model and highly uncertain, yet critically important to, to determine the mitigation costs and impacts. To illustrate, in, in a, a paper I did with Professor Dave Kelly some years ago, we showed that adding one additional purpose, person to a population forecast that has three has three climate-related effects. Climate change damage, which is proportional to the population, increases for that extra person. Total greenhouse gas emissions, which are also per capita increase, and subsequent population size increases since there, there will ultimately be more parents. So you can you can see that the importance of even just adding one more person can change uh, the analysis of of uh, climate change policy, which means it's critically important to get that right. Yet it's mostly exogenous in these models of climate change. Uh, the same logic applies to increases in per capita income, keeping population at its baseline. Population growth, in fact, has been called the ultimate externality. Yeah, this point you make about population growth is indeed critical because, I mean, this I hadn't actually thought about. The more people you have, there, and the more people there are, the more carbon you emit, that everyone knows. But the fact that, you know, even one extra person today can multiply into so many people in the future, I mean, that's obvious, but it's not something you generally uh, think about when you're thinking about this. 
So um, thank you for that. Now, in what ways do you think the models might be further developed? I mean, obviously, it'd be nice if we could predict population growth perfectly, you know, and, and many countries also have population policies in place, you know, but so let, let's forget about population growth for, for a minute. But in what ways do you think the models might be de further developed in terms of the research questions that are critical from an economic point of view? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, any any piece of these models can typically be refined further with further research. But from an economic point of view, in my opinion, there are two areas which beg for additional research. One is in better estimating the economic impacts of changes in the climate. So this is if the climate changes we're impacted by that change climate. I'm not talking about mitigation here. Uh, a lot of work's been done in agriculture, in part, I think, because we all uh, grew radishes or lettuce or something when we were children. So we know there's a clear intuitive connection between uh, the weather and uh, uh, agricultural growth. There's also a lot of data. That work has probably gone the furthest, but it's far from complete because it relies on detailed data about farm productivity and weather coverage around the globe is patchy. Some countries have a lot of data and some very little. When agriculture is decentralized with farmers making the planting decisions, we learn from ex just looking at experience how weather and climate changes affect productivity. Um, research on impacts in other sectors is much sparser since the mechanisms whereby weather and climate affect output are more subtle and poorly understood. So there's a lot that could be talked about here, but that's a, that's a quick snapshot. Um, and another area, I said there would be two areas. Another area which is poorly understood is how economies will respond to policies intended to reduce greenhouse gases. For instance, we don't have a good understanding of how economies might respond to, let's say, a, a carbon charge, $50 a ton carbon charge, just as an example. Will the extra burden significantly disrupt societies and economies? Something like we've experienced with COVID, which sort of hit us all on the, on the uh, unexpectedly. Or will create, creativity, innovation, and adaptation kick in as people, individuals, and companies adapt, uh, reducing the size of the burden and move away from carbon emissions to save on climate ch charges? We really don't know the answer to that question. You know, um, I, I want to go back to two things you just said. You said that there's data on agriculture, but the data are not evenly spread around the globe. So am I correct in thinking that the data are probably sparser in poorer developing countries, right? You get a lot of the data on agriculture from richer countries. Is that right? Well, as a, as a generalization, that's true. The U.S. has a lot of data, a long tradition of uh, data acquisition in agriculture. India does too, but generally your statement is correct. And, and sometimes there's a lot of data on certain things, but key things are missing. We looked at Russia, a student and I, several years ago, and they had a lot of data on the physical dimensions of agriculture, 
but they were missing key data on uh, how farmers were changing practices and contributing to productivity. So you, you sort of have to have a complete picture to be able to do, do anything with it. But to get back to your original question, certainly the poorer countries tend to be where there is less data. Yes, and in terms of um, adaptation as well, it you've highlighted some things that are very, very difficult to, to estimate because, you know, we really don't know even today how people respond to certain types of policy changes. And that's why, you know, this whole behavioral economics thing become very popular. And I also think that, and I read somewhere that the physical, uh, the soil, for example, that also adapts over time. So in terms of soil quality, et cetera, to changing climate. So even that is difficult to predict. Now, um, let's assume that we've got some good estimates of the economic damages, right? I mean, and then, you know, there are many other sectors as well, tourism, manufacturing. I think tourism will also be, uh, could also be quite uh, badly affected by changes in climate because... Certainly. For obvious reasons, yes. So once we have valued these damages for every year into the, into the future, we still need to think about what it means for our current decisions, our decisions today. So we need to look at the present value of all these future damages. Could you talk a bit about this? Yeah, that's basically if we have, uh, particularly with climate change, where the, uh, the cost and damages will be stretched over a very long period, so a century or even more, uh, how do you, how do you a- add them up so that you can uh, deal with, with one figure for damage instead of a, lots and lots of numbers? Uh, discounting is is typically uh, the way this is done. Simply just the you know, exchange rate between 2021 and 2030. So uh, that that's that much is quite intuitive and quite understanding. The big the big the tough question is well, what should that exchange rate be? How should we discount a 2030 euro? And the same for other years. Charlie, just to just to make that clear, it means we're trying to. Think about how much future losses mean relative to current gains from continuing whatever we were doing in the same old way, right? So we have to, that's what it means. How much do we value the future relative to the present? That's right. But it it pertains both to the damages from climate, the monetization of the damages from climate, which will stretch over many decades, as well as the costs, which are not just incurred now but will also be spread out over time. We have to try to uh, bring those back to comparable numbers in the current period to make a decision about it. If that's clear, I can talk a little bit more about where these things come from. Yes, please. So with regard to climate change policy, uh, government policies, we're talking about the social discount rate, society's discount rate, which may be quite different than the market interest rate, which many of us are very familiar with in our everyday lives, some of us anyway, that use a bank. The bank will pay us interest if we deposit money and if we borrow money from the bank, uh, we will pay them interest. But social discounting refers to the rate at which a government views costs or benefits occurring to today's citizens versus those incident on future citizens. It's a bit of a different issue, and the numbers you use 
are different. About a century ago, believe it or not, uh, Professor Frank Ramsey uh, suggested that there are three components to the social discount rate. That's a, uh, One is the government's uh, time preference, how they care about a current citizen versus that same citizen displaced in time. Uh, secondly, uh, concern about equity, how much more society cares about a euro going to a poor citizen versus a rich citizen. That one is not something you usually deal with when you're an individual dealing with your personal discount rate. And uh, thirdly, the productivity of the economy is the economic pie for society getting bigger or smaller over time. Uh, unlike a market discount rate, the social discount rate involves ethical questions. You can't just look up in the newspaper like you can for a market rate to find out what the current social rate is. Uh, there are also issues of risk, which differ between the government and individuals. So it's it, the government, this discount rate, social discount rate is quite different than the interest rate can be anyway. And for climate change analysis, it's the social discount rate we typically want to use. In the case of climate change, we often think of the social discount rate as being lower than the market rate. One explanation is that ethical arguments would suggest that a government which is presumed to live in perpetuity, although uh, we all, many of us have experiences that suggest that that may be questions, should care just as much for the citizens living today as for citizens living 100 years from now. Uh, now have no real preference for today's citizens. So that would make their time preference zero, which is lower than for private individuals. This is a complicated issue which we could discuss at great length. I would refer interest, interested readers to the discussion in Chapter 3 of the 2014 IPCC AR5 Working Group 3 report. There's a link to it on my webpage. So IPCC, could you spell that out, please? Yes. Well, IPC is Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And if you just Google IPCC AR5, you'll go to a Swiss webpage, which is where they're located. So let, let me switch gears a little bit now. There's a lot of discussion on abatement costs and how these may vary substantially across countries. Now, what are these costs and why do they vary? Well, abatement cost is uh, one of the simplest concepts in climate change. Sometimes the word abatement is what uh, confuses people. It, it refers to the cost of reducing, which is another word for abating, uh, emissions of greenhouse gases. This could simply be the cost of installing equipment in your home to use less carbon-based fuels for, in heating and cooling, something as simple as that. Or it could be more complicated in the sense of uh, shifting your consumption of goods and services away from those which are associated with higher level of levels of emissions. For instance, using a smaller, more efficient car. There are many, many examples. For manufacturers, it could be choosing production processes which are less carbon intensive. In all of these cases, there'll likely be an additional cost associated with operating in a less carbon-intensive fashion. Uh, to make things complicated, innovation can make a big difference. For instance, we've seen the cost of solar and wind generate electricity 
dropped dramatically in re- recent years around the world. Uh, batteries critical to future electricity reliability are on a similarly optimistic trajectory. So that means the abatement costs are declining, is what you're what you're saying? For for batteries, their their cost is is declining, and they're critical to making solar more widely available. I'm going to ask you a question that I have asked a previous speaker on our podcast series. If estimates of the social cost of carbon vary so widely, what should we do? And if we do something, which estimate should we use? There are a number of estimates of the social cost of carbon, as you, as you correctly point out. Uh, those, some of these are the result of political calculations or opinions more than actual unbiased analysis. But it's still a tough number to come up with. But to be specific, the U.S. government is using uh, something about $50 per ton of CO2 as the global social cost of carbon. During the Trump administration, which um, is in the past now, uh, they reduced this to $3, reflecting a focus on U.S. impacts only. Well, it's back up to $50 now. Some have suggested it be several hundred dollars, and some have suggested low numbers. And some some estimates you see are country-specific. And it is true the damage from a ton of CO2 can vary dramatically from one country to another. Uh, for instance, some Arctic re- regions may in fact benefit from warming. Uh, I go with this the careful analysis myself of the U.S. government estimating a global cost, underscore global, because if you emit a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere, effects of it are everywhere, not just to you as the emitter. Recognizing there's considerable uncertainty, particularly on the upside, and could be as high as $100 or more, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Over time, I expect the precision of these calculations to be revised and perfected. I would note that other countries such as Canada and Peru and probably others that I'm unaware of are following a similar path with uh, the social cost of carbon. Uh, the global so- What's it good for? The global social cost of carbon is particularly useful for integrating carbon considerations in other regulations, including emission regulations and energy efficiency regulations, which many countries have. It is less appropriate for big-picture negotiations among major countries, such as we will see in November when the IPCC members, the Conference of the Parties, meets in Glasgow for its annual uh, discussion of policy actions that the world can take. So then what should countries do? What should the global community aim for? given the differing views on the climate agenda, so broadly speaking? Well, uh, this has been a tough issue. They've, they've come together every year since uh, the mid-1990s trying to figure out what to do. I think the, um, the Paris Agreement from, I think, 2016 was um, one of the biggest successes, although it's by no means solving the problem, but it's a biggest success in confronting the issue head on. Countries, instead of trying to get all 180 countries of the world together to agree on doing something jointly, 
the decision was made to simply ask individual countries, what can you contribute to the globe? What are you able practically, politically, economically to do? You tell us. You know, make it something you can actually stick to. And they did that, and um, the Paris Agreement essentially codified those into the nationally determined contributions to emissions reductions. And uh, it's also part of that to come back every five years to, to update things. Some countries went big, some not so big, but every country tried. There is one other global action that can be taken. Uh, that's uh, occasionally raises its head. China and the U.S. reach agreement, just the two countries, uh, in the, during the Obama administration. That other action is that instead of trying to get all countries of the world to agree on something, we could fake focus on a major subgroup, for instance, four or five countries instead of 180. All of these are mixture of politics, uh, domestic politics, international politics, economics, and lots of other things that make any action at all very difficult. I know that the Paris Agreement is about both mitigation and adaptation, but I'd like to deal with adaptation a, a bit in my last question to you, which is a completely different ballgame from mitigation. So how should countries really be thinking about the split between adaptation and mitigation policies. I mean, you've got a fixed budget, you've got, you know, a strategy. I mean, a, a government trying to think about, you know, a climate strategy, how should they be thinking about this? Well, adaptation is, is definitely important. And I would add something that's not always appreciated, that it's easier than mitigation. For relatively rich countries, adaptation decisions can be completely internal to the country. No international coordination is needed. In fact, rich countries, in rich countries, many adaptation decisions do not even involve the government. When a farmer uh, decides to plant a more drought-resistant seed, that's adaptation, uh, yet it's a farmer's decision. Uh, that's in, in contrast to mitigation, where only some of the benefits accrue to the country doing the mitigated, and mitigation is a government decision. So you have to coordinate it with other countries to get the best result. Nevertheless, for, for getting back to adaptation, for poorer countries, financial constraints make assist, financial assistance important for adaptation to be uh, fully realized. You asked about the split between mitigation and adaptation. For relatively rich countries, the big climate challenge is how to reduce emissions from older buildings, factories, and consumer products. They've got a lot of, a lot of things that were built decades, even centuries ago, that need to be uh, modernized. Adaptation uh, is important, but perhaps secondary to mitigation in, in rich countries. For a poor country with more modest legacy emissions, by that I mean emissions from old factories and buildings, things like that, adapting to climate change may be the most important focus, though care must be taken as the development process proceeds to not invest excessively in carbon-intensive activities. Yes, there are, of course, 
poor countries with, where, in fact, you know, carbon emissions, poorer countries where, in fact, carbon emissions are already quite high. So, of course, they also need to be thinking about that, but in, in a somewhat different framework. Yeah, uh, countries of the world are obviously not in one of two categories. That's right. We, That's have, right. we, have, the, <laughs> we have the poorest countries and we have the richest countries, and we have lots in between. I mean, China is uh, it used to be in the poorer category, but not anymore, but it's, it's in between, and it's obviously a major source of emissions. So uh, the development of a country, that, the economic development of a country appears to follow a country moving from a purely agrarian and agriculture-oriented country where the emissions are pretty modest through uh, heavy industrialization and finally to moving to services and the industrialization process can be uh, most emission-intensive. So that it was a generalization putting everybody in two categories, but the lessons are still there, I think. Yes, definitely they are. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we end? Uh, no, it's, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking with you. And I think, uh, I think these issues are of great relevance today in the world. And I'm really pleased that uh, they're rising uh, globally in, in importance in everywhere I look. So it's, it's, it's terrific to talk to you. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you. And we really learned a lot. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, listeners, we continue to learn about climate change through this podcast series. So what did we learn? Firstly, models estimating damages from climate change try to integrate natural science, biological and economic phenomena, a very complex affair. Secondly, some important economic phenomena taken to be exogenous, such as population growth and innovation both of which are critically important for the effects we predict on the planet. As these change, so will our policy responses. Thirdly, adaptation to changing climate is difficult to model, whether behavioral, biological, or physical. Finally, while all countries need to move towards lower emission pathways, the balance of adaptation and mitigation measures and the nature of mitigation measures themselves will vary depending on country circumstance. Thank you and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This episode was recorded in August 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.